On June 17, 1994, millions of Americans were sitting in front of their TVs watching the NBA Finals. But in the second quarter, the game was interrupted by breaking news. The California Highway Patrol was chasing a white SUV down the 405. And inside the SUV was NFL Hall of Famer O.J. Simpson. From that moment, the O.J. murder trial was pretty much the only story anyone cared about. It wasn't just about a double homicide. It was about race, celebrity, discrimination in the justice system. Every country has at least one story like this, a crime that drags all of society's ugliest problems out of the shadows and into the spotlight. And once everyone's looking, it's impossible to look away. In Mexico, for example, one of the biggest crime stories in recent memory was about a serial killer who strangled and robbed elderly women. At first, this case seemed to be about the decay and dehumanization of Mexico City, the weakening family bonds that left these old women alone and defenseless. But by the time the killer was caught, it was about so much more than that. Sexism, police corruption, abuse, poverty, and even professional wrestling. This is the story of one of Mexico's most infamous serial killers, Juana Barraza, the little old lady killer. I'm Ashley Flowers, and this is International Infamy, a Spotify original from Parcast. This show is a little different from those I've done in the past. Consider it like a world crime tour. We have a slate of 15 notorious crimes from 15 different countries, and we will not only tell these fascinating, often gruesome tales, but get to the cultural beats of what makes them stand out so drastically. I'm thrilled to bring you the show and even more excited to get into our first episode. We're kicking off our tour in Mexico, where I'll lead you through the country's first ever official serial killer investigation. False leads, blackmail, lucha libre, this story has it all. And 15 years after the infamous little old lady killer was caught, there are still questions about how many murders she committed and whether another murderer might still be out there. All of that is coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. 
Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. When it comes to serial killers, there's a narrative we're used to. The killer is usually a middle-aged white man who takes every precaution to evade the police. Detectives race against the clock to piece together clues and zero in on a suspect. Finally, thanks to expert police work, the killer is arrested and all the cold cases are solved. In today's story, none of those things happen. It's a wild ride, and it starts in the late 90s when something strange is happening in Mexico City. Old ladies are being murdered in droves. In 1998, three elderly women are found strangled to death in their homes. At first, it seems like a coincidence. There's no connection between the victims. And in a city of 18 million, three strangulations are barely a blip on the radar. But the next year, a few more old women are killed in the same way. And the next year, a few more and a few more. The pattern continues until 2003, when the number of killings suddenly spikes to 12 in one single year. Now, Mexico City isn't some quaint little small town where murders never happen. During the same period of time, over 4,000 women were killed in the state of Mexico. Most of those crimes went unsolved and uninvestigated. Those women were mostly younger, mostly poor or working class, the kind of victims that sadly the police didn't really care about. They tended to just blame the victims for going out at night or hanging out with the wrong people. But little old grandmas brutally murdered in their homes? This to them was something different. The elderly are vulnerable. They're supposed to be respected and cared for. Instead, all these victims lived alone, apparently abandoned by their families, victimized by some unknown violent monster. What kind of society allows this to happen? And it would be horrifying enough if dozens of random people were just snapping and killing the old lady next door. But as the murders continue, it starts to look like they aren't so random after all. There were all sorts of weird patterns emerging. For one thing, the victims all live in middle to lower class neighborhoods near parks or gardens. They all live alone, and they're all enrolled in a government program for the elderly called Cibale. That last detail raises some eyebrows because several eyewitnesses remember seeing a woman in a nurse's outfit near the crime scenes. Pretty soon, tabloids are spreading rumors about a serial killer. El Mata Viejitas, the little old lady killer. For a while, the police deny that the crimes are connected. It's all media sensationalism, they say. But the bodies keep piling up. And with 12 identical unsolved murders in a single year, it's getting hard to pretend that nothing's going on. So in November 2003, the police finally cave to the pressure and make a historic announcement. They're on the hunt for a serial killer. This is the first legit serial killer investigation in Mexican history. They're used to dealing with crimes where there is a clear motive, sexual assaults, cartel violence, crimes of passion. But this person seems to just be killing for the sake of killing, and the senselessness is hard for the investigators to wrap their heads around. The deputy prosecutor says, quote, what's happening to us today did not happen to us before. 
It happened in movies in the United States. So with no idea where to start, they create a profile based on research from, you guessed it, the United States. What they come up with is basically a horror movie cliché. The killer is brilliant and organized, probably from a broken home. They have tendencies towards fetishism or sadomasochism, even though, by the way, none of the victims were sexually assaulted. And even though eyewitnesses saw a woman at the scene, the data says that more than 90% of serial killers are men. So the investigators narrowed down their search to a man wearing a wig. There is one part of the profile that's actually on point. The suspect is posing as a social worker from the Sibale program to get into these women's houses. Unfortunately, this throws the investigation into a political firestorm. At the time, the mayor of Mexico City was Andres Manuel López Obrador, who, yes, is the current president of Mexico. He also happened to create the Cibale program. This is obviously bad PR for the program, so he insists there is no serial killer. It's all a conspiracy cooked up by his political opponents. He basically tells the rest of the local government to back off and stop talking about it. So even though the police have just announced that they're looking for a serial killer, Mexico City's Department of Justice is like, nope, never mind, nothing to see here. And over the next year, it actually looks like Lopez Obrador is right. Maybe these are isolated incidents. Because it turns out there are lots of people in Mexico City dressing up like nurses to strangle old ladies. In April 2004, the police arrest a woman for committing a murder with this exact M.O. But once she's behind bars, the killings don't stop. Then in September, they arrest another suspect. This one is, in fact, a man wearing a wig. But in the months after he's arrested, another old woman is strangled. Amazingly, even though the murders are still happening, the chief prosecutor comes out and says, well, we caught two people. It's all over now. Case closed. But it's getting harder and harder to pretend there isn't a serial killer on the loose, especially when the same fingerprints are found at 10 different crime scenes. And multiple witnesses keep seeing the same person, a tall, stocky woman with short hair dressed like a nurse. This suspect has got to be out there somewhere, and the pressure is mounting. In the years since the investigation started, there have been 17 more murders. And by 2005, newspapers are reporting that the grand total has reached 49 unsolved murders in seven years. So the whole city is freaking out. Elderly people are afraid to leave the house alone. And by summer of 2005, something happens that turns this from a local problem into a nationwide scandal. Mayor Lopez Obrador announces he's running for president. Immediately, his opponents latch on to the little old lady killer as a fear-mongering tactic. They blame the mayor for the wave of crime and the moral collapse of his city. In August, the opposing party, the PAN, actually launches a program to deliver door chain locks to the elderly. This is becoming way too big of a problem to ignore. 
So in August of 2005, after nearly two years of denying it, the chief prosecutor finally comes out and says, okay, okay, you're right. There is a serial killer. After that, the Department of Justice launches a whole new effort called Parks and Gardens. Since all the victims lived near parks and gardens, they assumed that's where the killer was finding them. The police set up surveillance patrols in all the areas where the little old lady killer has been active. They make multiple composite sketches based on eyewitness accounts, and 70,000 copies are distributed all over the city. They even commission a 3D clay sculpture of the suspect's head. Of course, despite what the eyewitnesses said, the police are still claiming that the suspect is a man disguised as a woman. And this is what leads to an embarrassing low point of the entire investigation. By October of 2005, the chief prosecutor decides, maybe we're wrong. Maybe the killer is actually transgender. So taking a complete shot in the dark, the police go out and arrest somewhere between 38 and 49 trans sex workers, pretty much at random. None of them look anything like the composite sketches, and none of their fingerprints match the prints found at the crime scenes. The worst part is, after this massive failure, the investigators don't rethink their tactics. The chief prosecutor continues to insist, we are certain the suspect is a transgender person. By November, the investigation's lack of progress is becoming a serious political problem. Officials from the PAN are calling on the chief prosecutor to resign. Lopez Obrador's party is denouncing them for trying to politicize murder. The controversy gets so bad that the city assembly passes a resolution that basically says, let's stop arguing and let the prosecutor do his job, all right? And they had a point. All of this drama was taking attention away from the actual manhunt or woman hunt. If the investigators had just turned off the news and switched the channel to TV Azteca, they would have seen the little old lady killer giving an interview on national television. Coming up, I'll look at the suspect the police ignored. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. 
go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Now back to the story. On January 17, 2006, a middle-aged woman in a red sweater was interviewed on Mexico's TV Azteca channel. The woman, who gave her name as Juana Barraza Semperio, was attending a Lucha Libre match in downtown Mexico City. If you've never seen Lucha Libre, it's a form of professional wrestling where everyone wears masks and colorful costumes. It's pretty over the top. The fighters are divided into two categories. Technicos, the good guys who follow proper wrestling technique, and the rudos, the villains who break all the rules. When Juana was asked whether she's a ruda or technica, she basically says ruda from the bottom of her heart. Juana was best known as a promoter. She organized and ran wrestling events, but she'd actually had her own career in the underground Lucha Libre circuit. Before she retired in 2000 at the age of 42, she had fought under the name La Dama del Silencio, the Lady of Silence. Her stage outfit was a tight pink and silver jumpsuit with tall silver boots and a mask shaped like a butterfly. She was tall for a woman, about five foot nine. She was strong and muscular. She knew how to fight dirty. And, interestingly, she looked unnervingly similar to the sketches of the little old lady killer. And yet, even with wanted posters all over the city, no one noticed the resemblance. It sounds too bizarre to even consider, right? A female wrestler stalking Mexico City, killing old women? But as unbelievable as it sounds, when you look at Juana's story, it's really not surprising that it ended this way. Juana's childhood was a complete horror show. She was raised in poverty by a single mother who was an abusive alcoholic. When Juana was around 12, her own mother sold her to a random man at a bar for three beers. That's all she thought her daughter's life was worth, apparently. So from that night forward, Juana is essentially held hostage by this complete stranger. She's not allowed to leave his house. She has to do all of the housework, and she is repeatedly raped. At first, Juana said she didn't think this was real. Her mother or her stepfather or someone has to come pick her up eventually, right? But weeks pass, and then months and years, and no one comes for her. As it happens, her mother had told everyone that Juana just ran off with this guy on her own. But her stepfather never believed it. I mean, she was 12 years old. Even if she did run away of her own free will, you've got to find her and make sure she's safe. So he and his brothers keep looking for Juana, even with barely any evidence to go off. It takes years, but eventually they find her. By then, Juana is 17 years old, and she's just given birth to her first son, Jose. Understandably, Juana never forgives her mother for selling her off for half a six-pack. And from there, things never really get easier for her. She has to raise the baby she'd had with her rapist. She'd never gone to school or learned to read or write, so it's hard finding a job. Her first husband is abusive, so after a few years, she leaves him. Her second partner isn't much better. So it's basically up to Juana to raise and provide for all four of her children. 
want to make some money by working as a maid and a laundress during the week and wrestling on the weekends, but it isn't enough. By 1995, when she's about 37, she's so desperate that she turns to crime. At first, it's really scattered. Shoplifting, breaking into parked cars, holding up pedestrians with a toy gun. But in 1996, she hatches a plan with a friend of hers named Araceli. They're going to dress up as nurses, talk their way into the homes of the elderly, and steal any valuables in sight. Not kill or hurt anybody, just rob them. They do this a few times, but then the two women apparently have some kind of falling out, and Araceli stops being involved. Now, here's where the problems start. Araceli's boyfriend, Moises Flores Dominguez, is a police commander. And Mexico's police aren't just bad at catching serial killers, they're also notoriously corrupt. Bribery and extortion are pretty much part of their job, and officers are rarely punished. So when Araceli tells Moises about the robberies, he has an idea. Instead of arresting Juana, he's going to blackmail her. Moises picks Juana up and tells her, give me 12,000 pesos or I'm taking you down to the prosecutor's office. That's like 1,600 US dollars, so it is a good chunk of change, but apparently she's able to pay it because she's released. It's not clear how long this extortion went on, but Juana was arrested at least twice, possibly even by multiple police agents but she was always released without being booked or charged or fingerprinted. If any of these cops had just done their job, they could have stopped a serial killer before she even became a serial killer because Juana's fingerprints would have immediately linked her to the very first murder she committed. While Juana's criminal career was escalating, her life was spiraling out of control. In 1998, her firstborn son, Jose, was killed in a street fight at age 24. Juana called this the saddest moment of her life, which is saying something. Then in 2000, she had to retire from wrestling after a back injury, so she was trying to scrape together a living from odd jobs, housework, and, of course, robberies. With all of those pressures bearing down on her, Juana was an emotional powder keg waiting to explode. It was only a matter of time before something set her off. And it finally happened on November 25th, 2002. That afternoon, Juana arrived at the house of 64-year-old Maria de la Luz Gonzalez Anaya. Using her typical ploy, Juana pretended to be a government social worker and Maria let her in. But once they were inside, Maria made some kind of comment that Juana took as an insult. And Juana just snapped. She attacked Maria, beating her so hard that it fractured four ribs and actually tore one of her kidneys. Then she threw Maria down onto the couch and strangled her. Once she was dead, Juana tore through the house, stealing whatever she could find, emptying jewelry boxes, searching for spare cash, and leaving her fingerprints everywhere. But the police were never able to find a match for those prints. So Maria's murder went unsolved, and Juana was free to kill again. After that, the same pattern kept playing out over and over again. Juana would stake out parks and shopping centers until she found a suitable victim. 
She would follow the old women home and then convince them to let her in. And then, if the old woman made one wrong move, Juana would fly into a rage and strangle her with whatever was nearby. A pair of stockings, a stethoscope, a cable, even her bare hands. Then she'd steal any valuables and be on her way. She later said that she hated older women because they reminded her of her mother and all of the trauma she'd faced at her mother's hands. When she was asked why she killed her victims, she explained, quote, When I saw them, I felt a lot of anger, and even more when they showed superiority or thought that because of their money, they could humiliate me, end quote. So this was a way of taking out the anger she still felt for her mother, and also of asserting her own power. From what Juana had seen of the world, she believed there were two kinds of people, victims and victimizers, and she was no longer going to be a victim. Juana kept up this routine for years, and her ruse never stopped working, even when everyone knew there was a killer on the loose, even when sketches of Juana's face were plastered up all over the city. It's almost like she was taunting the police, like she knew that no matter how brazen she was, they were too incompetent to actually catch her. After all, the posters still said that they were looking for a man. But in the end, it wasn't detective work that would bring Juana down. The only thing that could stop her was sheer dumb luck. Coming up, I'll look at the events that led to Juana's capture and the media's reaction to Mexico's first female serial killer. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. And now back to the story. On the morning of January 25, 2006, Juana Barraza made breakfast for her kids, sent them off to school, and then went out to find some work for the day. She typically hired herself out doing laundry or housework, but that afternoon she stumbles upon something even better, an old woman hobbling home from the market with grocery bags. Juana approaches the woman, whose name is Ana Maria, and offers to help her carry her bags. Ana Maria is grateful for the help, and when they make it to her door, she lets Juana come in for a glass of water. Once they're inside, Juana mentions that she works as a laundress. She's wondering if maybe there's any laundry Ana Maria needs help with while she's there. Ana Maria says, well, you know, actually, yeah. How about I pay you 22 pesos to wash and iron these 12 pieces of clothing? 22 pesos is around like two U.S. dollars. So Juana is like, well, that's a little low. And in response, Ana Maria mutters, this is how servants always are. They want to make too much money. That comment sets Juana off. She grabs a stethoscope that's lying on the living room table and wraps it around Ana Maria's throat. Once Ana Maria stops breathing, Juana leaves her body right there on the floor with the stethoscope still draped around her neck. But Juana had made a mistake. Unlike the rest of her victims, Ana Maria actually doesn't live alone. There's a separate apartment in the back of the house that she rents to a young man named Joel. 
And just as Juana is leaving the building, Joel is walking in. Now, Joel notices the woman hurrying out, but he doesn't think anything of it at first. On the way to his room, though, he notices that Ana Maria's door is open, so he decides to stop in and say hi. And as he steps into the living room, he sees her body lying on the floor. Joel immediately pieces it all together, and he runs out of the house screaming for help. And by a stroke of luck, at that exact moment, a patrol car is driving by. The two officers inside hear Joel shouting, and they see Juana sprinting down the block. She's running against traffic, so the officers have to get out of their car and chase her on foot. But they finally manage to catch up with her and wrestle her into the patrol car. And what they find next shocks them. In Juana's bag, there are medical supplies and a fake social worker's ID card. And Juana's face looks eerily familiar now, exactly like the composite sketches that are plastered all over the precinct. Immediately, one of the officers calls their commander and says, we captured the little old lady killer. The commander replies, Really? After a more than two-year manhunt of historic proportions, it wasn't smart police work or a psychological profile or even a wanted poster that brought Juana down. It was complete chance. Even the police couldn't believe it. But within minutes, the block was swarming with officials and reporters. The cops literally didn't even take Juana down to the station before they started talking to the press. Right there, practically in front of Ana Maria's house, they told the reporters that the little old lady killer had been caught red-handed. Amazingly, Juana herself chimed in and confessed to killing Ana Maria. But she insisted she had nothing to do with any other murders. As we already know, there were multiple people in Mexico City strangling old women. As Juana said, quote, Today I did it but I don't have to pay for everyone else. And besides, she pointed out, the killer the police were looking for was a man. Unfortunately for her though, the police now had her fingerprints. And within hours, they linked her to 10 additional murders as well as an attempted robbery the year before. Juana Barraza was undeniably the little old lady killer. By the end of the day, enough details had been revealed to make this the most bizarre story of the year. For one thing, she's a former luchadora. Almost every new story described her as Juana Barraza, known in the wrestling world as the Lady of Silence. An article in La Jornada even described how she strangled Ana Maria with, quote, a strength acquired in a wrestling ring. As if that isn't sensational enough, there's also something the police found in Juana's house. An altar to Santa Muerte, a folk saint who represents death. Worshipping Santa Muerte is actually not that uncommon in Mexico. She's kind of a patron saint for anyone who lives in the margins of society. That includes the poor, sex workers, the LGBT community, and of course, criminals and drug traffickers which leads to Santa Muerte being misrepresented as some kind of criminal death cult. So to the media, the fact that Juana had a Santa Muerte altar in her house was an obvious sign that she was a murderer and possibly a devil worshiper. 
A few headlines claimed that Juana practiced black magic to avoid getting caught by the police. But by far, the most surprising thing about Juana wasn't that she was a wrestler or a Santa Muerte worshiper. It's that she was a woman. I said it earlier that female serial killers are rare in general, but in Mexico, they were literally unheard of before Juana. It was hard for people to wrap their heads around the fact that a woman, and more than that, a mother, could commit this kind of violence. It completely shook gender expectations. At first, the media coped with this by completely demonizing Juana. The fact that every story referred to her as the Lady of Silence is telling. They wanted to paint her as a cartoonish lucha libre villain instead of a real woman. They focused on her masculine appearance and hobbies, her Santa Muerte worship, her ruthlessness. But as more details started to emerge on Juana's background, the story looped back around to where it started the decay of society and family values. Just a few months after Juana's arrest, her life was dramatized in a novel by Victor Ronquillo. The author said the same thing officials had been saying for years. This case was, quote, a regrettable result of the social degradation we are experiencing. But not only because the elderly victims had been forgotten and abandoned by their families, Juana had also experienced the same thing. Of course, no amount of childhood trauma excuses murder, but in a lot of ways, she was the product of her environment. From day one, the world had been victimizing her. It's not surprising that at a certain point, she decided to start taking victims of her own. Unfortunately for Juana, she didn't get much sympathy from the rest of the public or from the judge. By the time her trial was over in 2008, she was convicted of a total of 16 homicides and 12 robberies. With that, the case seemed to be closed. But there are some big lingering questions. There are still 33 old lady murders that were never officially solved. Unofficially, the police and the media assume Juana was responsible for all of them, even though we know there were multiple killers in Mexico City with this same M.O., but did she really commit all 49 murders? Or is there another little old lady killer out there somewhere letting Juana take the fall? In the end, it doesn't matter. As far as anyone can tell, after Juana was arrested, the murders of old women stopped. Mexico finally had its serial killer. So even though she's currently serving a 759-year prison sentence, in at least one way, Juana got what she wanted. As she told the judge at the end of her trial, may God forgive you and not forget me. Thanks for listening. Next week, I'll be back with another stop in our true crime world tour. And if you want to hear more, you can find all episodes of International Infamy for free on Spotify. International Infamy was co-created by Max Cutler and Ashley Flowers and is a Spotify original from Parcast, starring Ashley Flowers. It's executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of International Infamy was written by Kate Gallagher with writing assistance by Drew Cole, fact-checking by Anya Bayerly, and research by Chelsea Wood. 
To hear more stories hosted by me, you can check out Crime Junkie and all Audio Chuck originals. 